Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we flip things around to get skillful with actions. Today I'm joined by Mary Richards, uh, who's the author of a book called Teach People, Not Poses. <laughs> and as she puts it, the purpose of yoga is self-inquiry, not making shapes. But that does start by becoming more familiar with physical form. And since we're all a bit different, the modern fixation on postural alignment can be unhelpful. As Mary explains, uh, it caused her injuries. So instead, she encourages students to investigate their bodies and uh, find a balance between getting comfortable and embracing discomfort. Um, we don't just talk about bodies, though, um, in light of the above. Uh, at one point, Mary calls herself the Sith Lord of Yoga, because part of the point is to integrate our shadow side. Um, so we examine how philosophy and practice intersect in this way, with uh, mental patterns having physical correlates and vice versa. Um, and uh, in the process, we list a bunch of postures that might be worth abandoning, and unless you're a contortionist, um, and talk about the value of one-to-one -one teaching um, of all kinds, as well as the ultimate importance of practising alone. <laughs> so you can find out more about Mary via her website. Uh, see the link in the show notes, uh, where you'll also find details of a, a men's group I'm running this Sunday, uh, December 10th as well as a six-week philosophy immersion that starts in February. Um, now, you can investigate further uh, via my website, uh, danielsimpson.info. Um, and if you'd like to support this podcast as a paying subscriber, visit ancientfutures.substack.com. All donations are greatly appreciated and uh, make it possible to devote the time I need to to read books and uh, keep interviewing great guests. Uh, so for now... Let's get grounded in gravity and some down-to-earth humour with Mary Richards. Mary, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Pleasure to be talking to you today. And uh, I wanted to first just say congratulations. I'm uh, holding up a, a copy of your book, Teach People Not Poses, which is a concept we're going to unpack in some depth, I think, in this conversation. And I really enjoyed it. It's a very stimulatingly written book, um, kind of uh, yeah, more than what it implies on the cover. It's not, you know, a guidebook to teaching people not poses. It's, uh, you know, uh, an invitation to explore your own body and um, to understand physical yoga practice from that perspective, which is not... <laughs> the way it's often taught um, and certainly not perhaps the way that both of us started out discovering it so yeah I'd be curious to to know a little bit more about why you wanted to write a book in the first place well I've been a yoga practitioner for over 30 years and uh, a teacher for 23 years now so uh, I'm long in the tooth if you will and when I first started practicing, I was, you know, 21 years old and uh, I was pretty autodidactic. Uh, you know, it was the early 90s and the Washington, D.C. metropolitan region here in the States. And uh, there weren't yoga studios popping up like daisies on every no. corner. <laughs> and uh, so I picked up a copy of light on yoga mm -hmm. and began my practice by myself on my mat 
And then I started going to classes and that's when I started getting hurt. Hmm. And then I went to uh, teacher training and the same instructions that were provoking woe and dismay for me <laughs> on the mat were, you know, that's what I was learning to share with yeah. others. And I was just like, well, this is bizarre, but, you know, people far more experienced than I am espouse these ideas. So perhaps I'm the problem. Mm. Well, I might still be the problem, but I believe the solution lies within us. And that's really what led to this book, Teach People Not Poses, because I've seen thousands of people on the mat over the decades. And while typical instructions suit many younger bodies, they don't support a long life practice for many other bodies and combine that with attitude and uh, other tendencies. And we have a recipe for destruction in some ways. And I'm, you know, this is not an indictment of my fellow colleagues or anything like that. I believe we're all doing the best we can with the information we have. And so this book was really inspired as a way to offer information to folks where the proof is in the pudding. It's very much an applied practice type of book. It is so much that way that it's almost uh, impossible for us to discuss it in abstract because it's an invitation to you to start out by mapping your own body and then go into some explorations of how things show up in you know, one's individual physique, because we're all slightly different. And there is no sort of uniform archetypal form to which we can all mold ourselves, we have to find a way of expressing something from within, rather than imposing it from without, it seems. Exactly. And so many people will, you know, especially because I've been at the front of the class for so long, uh, I learned early on, it's not wise for me to demonstrate, because what I'm able to do physically is I'm an outlier. I like to say mm. that people who teach asana are not normal. And I mean that with love, you know, we yeah. have, we tend to have greater ranges of motion, et cetera. And we're not presenting realistic forms to many folks on the mat. And that can be intimidating and, uh, a disinvitation to practice. And then with you, if you combine that with, uh, I'm just going to put my foot in it, Daniel. <laughs> Go for it. And, you know, <laughs> we can welcome, clean up. Welcome. <laughs> uh, you combine that with sort of Judeo-Christian ideas about the body and even yogic mm. ideas about the body as being Absolutely. a silky vessel, then we tend to punish ourselves with practice. And so the reason why, for instance, chapters two and three of my book are about body mapping and understanding the bony landmarks of our structure and variations from the idealized forms we typically see in an anatomy book or say in a yoga magazine. Uh, it's so that we can really begin to see ourselves with 
accuracy and to have empathy for ourselves because you know the first step of empathy is curiosity right Mm -hmm. and then understanding arises from that and then we can actually welcome all of ourselves into ourselves and that's why i focus on structure to start because so many folks confuse soft tissue a soft belly for instance, for structure, uh, they don't understand like the actual anatomical, uh, their anatomical proportions, mm-hmm. you know? And so I really want us to let go of so many of these ideas of being straight and thin and bendy and really recognize that curves are where it's at. And everybody's unique, just like everyone else. And looking into this sort of uh, reality of how our bodies actually are, is it still possible to have some sort of generalized framework for what we're asking them to do? Or is it really the case that a lot of things that people have been practicing and calling yoga postures are really nothing to do with what a healthy inquiry into our own body consists of? Should some of them be retired completely? Interesting. Uh, I think we can actually absolutely teach to the broad middle, if you will. Mm. And because the reality is all of us are swimming in a sea of gravity. So the principles of movement uh, apply to us all, no matter our bony configuration. Uh, But what we can do is we can aim for the middle, but then offer uh, specific suggestions for individuals that are moving differently in front of us. And Mm -hmm. that's the key, right? And if we sort of harken back to the origins of teaching, where you really were running off into the forest to be with your guru and to work with your guru one-on-one, the group class model is a divergence from the tradition. So it becomes all the more important, I believe, that we uh, as leaders of classes refine our attention to detail. So we can have a general idea, for instance, we know in warrior two pose, for instance, in Virabhadrasana two, that the front foot, we do not want the front foot, the toes to turn inward, Hmm. you know, as a general rule, you know, because we're thinking about balancing compression forces through an unstable knee, right? But then we need to consider the students that have the 33% of people, and that's a low ball number, that have noticeable anatomical variation, they're knock-kneed or they're bow-legged. We also, we want to go further than that. Because mm. isn't asana, that's, maybe this is a naive way to practice, but asana is, uh, for me, a process of inquiry. And it's a question that never ends. Well, this is a very interesting place to dive deep, I think, because yoga is a process of inquiry and asana is a you know, very small part of yoga and hasn't really had the prominence it has today until you know the last hundred years or so. It, it's just a, a preliminary element of an internal meditative journey and uh, yeah, perhaps didn't really involve anything other than sitting for a lot of yoga's history. 
Yes, yes. Because if you look back, you know, at the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, for instance, so many of those postures were oriented towards sitting so that we mm-hmm. could cultivate the endurance and, of course, the range of motion to sit in meditation for extended duration. And so, yeah, a lot of what we do now in modern pose practice, let's work within the last century, mm-hmm. is a really more of a form of exercise. Exactly, yes. And so that's where intention, I believe, becomes the differentiating factor, or at least one of the differentiating factors, (laughs) because we all need to exercise. Bodies are bioengineered to move. Again, we are swimming around in the sea of gravity, working with all kinds of different forces of opposition, of synergy, et cetera, right? And so where asana is different from, say, going for a run or uh lifting weights is the intention behind the practice. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, and what I hope comes through clearly in my book is that the intention for practice is Mm self-understanding. We have so many ideas about how we appear in the world, how we act in the world and what is organic to our nature and beneath the level of you know the ideas we have about ourselves and there's something about you know going into the body that kind of helps at least in the first stage to get out of the head and uh, perhaps through the body one can see perhaps something beyond the body but it's uh, it's a way in at least yes exactly because you know how um we we have two brains, right? We have the brain in our head, obviously, which is like a supercomputer um, calculating odds and options and habits and things like that. But we also have a brain in our belly and that's really the liver. I don't, I don't want to get too esoteric about this with you here, but <laughs> But the liver to spleen axis and our small intestine, you know, we secrete most of our serotonin in our gut and our GI tract, our uh, organs of metabolism and assimilation and elimination in the belly, they're really attuned more acutely to our present moment reality you'll sense that you're under stress or threat faster in your belly than you often will in your brain because your brain will say oh you're just making that up Mm. and so the advantage of asana practice is to present ourselves with physical challenges that we can work within so that we become more comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. And the key for that is the discomfort then isn't about overstraining our soft tissue or over compressing our joints, but rather it's the perceptions that arise when we're practicing an asana that 
challenges uh, challenges our neuromusculoskeletal system in such a way that we have to rise to the occasion. Are, are you with me? I am. And it takes me back to, I'm trying to find, I wrote down a quote that you had from one of your early teachers. Yoga is the conscious choice of the difficult. And um, yeah, at that moment, I, I, I slightly feared, I have to admit, that you were going to sort of retreat, given that this was appearing in a chapter on restorative postures and the need to, you know, make more space for rest, you're going to retreat into the uh, scented candle soft bubble. And uh, actually, you then went on to say, well, you have been so driven that you'd perhaps hurt yourself by striving to be, you know, kind of always chafing at the bit to go a bit further, harder, faster. Um, but you were still saying that the whole point of yoga is to get a little bit beyond the comfort zone. We're not supposed to just stay cocooned in in what's immediately comfortable because sometimes that's, you know, our habituation to really unhelpful tendencies. Somehow we've got to see through the tendencies, but also not hurt ourselves. So you were talking about the need to actually welcome in more of the dark side, you know, the yeah. underlying difficulties so that we can actually be with what's unpleasant you know, and integrate the shadow to an extent that we're able to to let go of some of the the, you know, the patterning that's not really helping as much rather than just run away from it. Yes, I'm like the Sith Lord of yoga, you know. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the love and light business. I'm in darkness and doubt. Because here's the thing. Um, in my opinion, growth occurs most readily along lines of strain. And this actually uh, correlates with our anatomy. And uh, bones, for instance, grow along lines of strain. It's Wolf's Law. And in order to develop the bone density necessary to withstand the forces of gravity and the ground reaction forces that arise every time you know, our heel strikes the earth, taking a step, there must be strain. You, it, yoga is a process of intentional strain. You know, whether it's you're trying to master Padmasana or you're examining your relationship with truth, well, I guess that's an interesting example that you raised there, because I, I suppose in in back of my mind, I was starting to wonder whether Padmasana might fall into the column of poses that ought to be retired, because not many people can do it in a way that is not going to hurt them in the long run. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do still come back to that. Uh, are, are people straining for forms that are kind of irrelevant, uh, although Padmasana is a very old traditional yoga posture, unless you've been sitting in that way from an early age, uh, or you've got a particular range of motion capacity, it, it's it's not that attainable except through compromising joints. And that's the point that was coming into my mind when you're talking about withstanding strain. Um, you know, we load our joints with a lot of strain in, in some of these postures. I mean, I'm sitting here with arthritis, uh, perhaps exacerbated through my you know, extreme practice of contortion over the years. And uh, I'm aware that you know, some of the things I was doing were not helpful. And uh, I'm curious as to, as to whether you think that there are some things that are coming up in the way that asana is commonly taught that you know really are leading in the opposite direction to what you're pointing towards. Oh, absolutely. And there are many 
postures that I think need to be excised from our movement vocabulary. Would you be willing to name a few? Oh, absolutely. Um, Bekasana, frog's pose. Mm. The, do you want an intact ACL? Don't do that pose, <laughs> you know? Supta <laughs> uh, Karmasana. When yeah. is when in life do you ever need to put your feet behind your head? I mean, to advance to the next series, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And uh, oh my gosh, I have a long list actually. And for most people, lotus pose, padmasana. Uh, you know, some of us it comes easily. You know, if you as a child were able to sit you know, crisscross applesauce in the reading circle with your knees down, lotus pose is probably going to be anatomically available to you. But this is why we need to understand bony landmarks and, you know, how people are stacked orthopedically because you can do as many uh, pigeon poses and so-called hip openers, which is a whole term that I have difficulty with. Uh, and never be able to uh, achieve lotus pose because of your anatomy. Simply because you have deep acetabular fossa and short necks of the femurs. That's just never going to be in your wheelhouse. So I would say headstands for most people are insane. You know, especially in we have an epidemic of forward head position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you're, you know, it's great. <laughs> yeah. And throw into that, uh, you know, high, uh, undiagnosed high blood pressure. Most folks are sleep deprived. You know, I'd say Sirshasana for the overwhelming um, proportion of the population is contraindicated. And certainly going up into Sirshasana in the pike position with both legs is ridiculous. It's one thing if you're a little, a little kid, you know, with an unfused sacrum, (laughs) but once you're 25, 26 years old, for most people, that's really contraindicated. And it so overloads uh, the SI joints, as well as the tissues of the neck and the shoulders, that it's really dangerous. So there are lots of poses that I no longer teach. I'm not a fan, honestly, of sitting, of seated poses, mm-hmm. because most of us sit too much. Mm-hmm. You know, in chairs. Yes, in chairs, which are the devil. You know, sugar and chairs <laughs> are <laughs> terrible things in my in my world. Uh, but you know, seated postures are the most dangerous, actually, and they fly under the radar. And especially in practice systems like Yin, where you're sitting in, you know. Ardhabhata Padma Pashmatanasana for six to eight minutes, completely overwhelming your Golgi tendon receptors so your joints can't protect themselves. It's just these things are contraindicated for the overwhelming majority of people. And so, yeah, I have a long list, Daniel. <laughs> so why on earth is anybody doing this stuff then? Um, I, I've got a clue in mind from one of the things that you wrote that you were submitting to authority figures and it's just the way it was done. And you, you know, like anybody else, if you want to get ahead, you you follow the rules and uh, you try to, to, you know, 
emulate those who seem to be further up the hierarchy um is that the only reason or is there some you know it feels good to do some of these things and that's a false friend well um certainly i'm a i'm a competitive person so i like a challenge and i've always liked to move my body and uh i play sport i still play sport uh, even at 54. And uh, so I enjoyed the challenge of getting into more complex body positions. But really, and and here's the thing too, what's so great about asana is we're really articulating the body through all of its possible directions of movement, which is so necessary, especially for to maintain disc height in the vertebral column. So many of us live a very um, front forward facing life. And what asana invites us to do is it invites us to bend forward, extend backward, rotate and combine these movements. And that's so profoundly important for disc health, joint health, because motion is lotion and bone density. The thing is, we're making it harder than it needs to be. You know, we don't actually need to have bound, uh, tight little poses like Marichasana D, for instance, uh, (laughs) to achieve (laughs) the salutary effects of asana. And for, again, for most people, especially as we age, uh, it's not healthy to push ourselves in that manner. You know, one of my favorite things to say is a little yoga goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And Sounds I was like the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm a, the, the Gita actually is really ultimately what led me to the mat was an early reading of the Gita. Uh, when I was 14 years old and I've gone, I go back to the Gita on pretty much a daily basis because it gives me hope and enlivened Shraddha for me. And I'm more of a real politicker in many ways, you know? And so the yoga sutras of Patanjali, for instance, feed what's already strong in me, which is that we're flawed and we must in- devote ourselves in extremis to uh, difficulty in order to overcome our humanity in many ways. But the Gita yeah. is is different for me. So the Gita is, oh no, it's actually beautiful to be alive. <laughs> you know and so that's the way i hope i i practice and i share the practice is you know it's great listen if you want to do the all the bug poses as i call them you know scorpions and fireflies you know titibasana and um uriksasana and all that and you are a former dancer or gymnast and you um, are willing to take those risks for your long-term joint health and stability, 
that that's up to you. You know, I believe in autonomy and independence for the typical person coming to asana classes. However, really they want to, in my experience, and I've had a lot of it, they want to be able to play tennis. They want to be able to go golfing. They want to be able to get up and down the stairs in their house comfortably with control. They want to be able to walk their dogs, pick up their grandkids, et cetera. And we don't have to be um, showy. <laughs> we don't have to do showy things or push ourselves to, to enable those body skills. Really, if we hew closer to the seed movements and focus in particular on the on stabilization of the pelvis in this sea of gravity, that's going to preserve our locomotion. There are lots of threads there I really want to pick up on. <laughs> First of all, I think, you know, I'm just going to park this thought, um, you know, this this question really of, you know, where where the yoga dimension is in what's essentially basically, you know, a mixture of physical therapy and movement skills. Um and uh, then also, I really want to come back to the pelvis. But first of all, I just want to rewind to the Gita. Uh, what were you doing with the Bhagavad Gita at 14? Um, if I remember rightly, you said your your dad gave you a copy. What was he doing with the Bhagavad Gita in the <laughs> early 80s? <laughs> My father was a literature major at the University uh... of Virginia. And uh, I was a very precocious reader as a little. Um, I, you know, I, and I hewed toward the classics. I read Jane Eyre when I was nine and like got it, you know? And so I came up with Shakespeare and George Eliot and uh, uh, Herman Hesse Siddhartha. And when I was 14, I had a very serious trauma and it was difficult for me to, um, keep my legs under myself. And my father was very concerned about the depth of depression uh, and anxiety I was feeling. And I was, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. Okay, so let me put that out there. And, but I wasn't, I'm not a Bible person. It's just, it's just not my vibe. You know, I'm just not a Christian in orientation. And my father always had this belief that uh, we we make it through this world through our connection with a higher power. And the Christian uh, philosophy wasn't landing with me. And he was trying to help me honestly save my life. And so he introduced me to the Bhagavad Gita to Barbara Stoller Miller's translation. I believe that's the one he started me with. And it, it was like a coming home. And I remember I was going through um, a couple of years later, I was going through confirmation in the United Methodist church, which is a, you go to evening classes a couple times a week and you engage in all of this inquiry and, the um, reverend of the church that I, I was uh, in as a kid, um, he also had a, a PhD in divinity studies. And a couple of weeks into class, he held me after class and he said, you know, Mary, 
you're really taking this very seriously and you're not a Christian. You're a a Buddhist. So I want to help you. So he introduced me to the Dhammapada and the, Uh yeah, yeah. And also Krishnamurti and and Sri Aurobindo and helped me with my Gita studies. And I maintained a 35 year relationship with Reverend Rudolph Kidd. He's, he died in 2009 and he, he really helped me let go of some beliefs or at least loosen the hold of these beliefs that uh, life is life is pain and suffering (laughs) and that people will take advantage of you and harm you given the chance. I mean, this is dark stuff, you know, this, but it's a lot of us have these experiences. And so for me, the Gita really is the reminder that, you know, to action alone are we entitled never to its fruit. And so be clear so that you're doing right work with right intention. And that actually comes from within you not from what other people are telling you. Exactly. It's about trusting yourself, not just yourself, but trusting your gut. It's complicated though with the Gita because it's also got that other layer of there is a, you know, you've got to do what you're told, you know, you're a Kshatriya, your job's fighting, get up, get into battle, kill. Um, And that's often a reason why people don't want to read it. But I think actually it speaks our language a lot more than the Yoga Sutra, especially, I mean, it starts with despair, (laughs) which is where a lot Mm -hmm. of us show up to a yoga class for whatever reason. We've got, you know, a sore body part or a broken heart or, you know, a doctor's suggestion that we need to get our weight down or cholesterol under control or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, there we are kind of feeling a bit confused. And then we go into the class and there's all these bendy people and we feel even more sorry for ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that was my initial experience and yet something felt good and so I kept coming back and uh you know it was it was uh, a, a sort of journey from that despondency into a discovery as, as you sort of uh, alluding to but what I found really striking about what you wrote about the Gita at the start of your book was that although you'd read it and it was enriching in all of these ways it was only actually when you started doing stuff with your body that you got the philosophy to sort of fall more into place for you and I wonder if you could say why that was. Yeah, you know, because I was reading, when I first read the Gita, I read it with my brain. I read it with my eyes and my mind. And when I really started practicing asana, I developed a felt sense of service, service to myself, showing up for myself, paying attention to myself my values, how am I enlivening those values in the actions of asana? It really became an experiential reading of the Gita. And I believe honestly that that's the way many of us learn, you know, because it, without that, without that experiential felt, examination of the principles expounded upon in the Gita, it's easy to think, well, what's the point? Mm -hmm. You know, if I, if I am the archer, well, I'm the archer. 
and I'm going to shoot my uncle now, you know, <laughs> and, and it was really the, the getting on the mat that I was able to sense the deeper energies of my aliveness. I wasn't living from my brain down. And I really began to understand that through yoga, life is a process of uh, brain to body, body to brain, and back again. My my teacher, one of my primary teachers is Judith Hanson Lassiter. And she talks about asana in particular as a process of action, reflection, action, reflection. Hmm. And that's really so much of what it is because Yes, we're making cognitive decisions. Okay, now I'm going to practice warrior two. And then all of these things happen in our brains that uh, help us create that shape with our bodies. But as we're creating the shape, and then once we're abiding in the shape, the body is sending a tremendous amount of information up to the brain. This is the experience of warrior two. This is how it feels. And that then changes the cognition, typically in a way that we enjoy. Absolutely. And that's what keeps us bringing back to the, bring, bring, that's what brings us back to the mat time and time again and into triangle pose and warrior pose again and again is that each time it's a reminder that the only moment we have is now. And that's something that we may understand and espouse intellectually, but we can truly only feel when we put ourselves in a context that allows the feeling to reside or to arise. And asana is a great way to do that. It's also, though, at the same time, another great way of distracting ourselves and getting fixated on achievement mm -hmm. and getting totally over-identified with physical form. So it can mm -hmm. lead in the opposite direction and it has done on an enormous scale in the last couple of decades. And yet, as you point out, it doesn't have to be that way. And I wonder if there are some principles behind what you're teaching that help to integrate this philosophy with physicality in a way that means that even if some of the ideas of the yeah, movement science keep evolving and have nothing necessarily to do with yoga, they can actually be harnessed for the purpose of revealing more of who we really are. Yes. And what, you know, the, I think one of the greatest gifts, if we could just talk about the movement science for a moment is the, is the understanding, the burgeoning understanding that less is more. Mm. We don't need to do 90 minutes of asana to reap reward. We can do five to 10 minutes you can have these movement uh, breaks, interludes throughout your day that are just as effective, if not more so, mm -hmm. than a big block of movement once or twice a week. The key is, you know, a little bit often. 
And that helps reduce pain. It improves our physical facility. It improves, you know, our coordination, our muscle control, our balance, et cetera, helps rewire our nervous system in a way that we are uh, less reactive and more responsive. You know, it puts the break, the vagal break on a bit, which is so useful. So there's that. Um, and then the, then the responsibility really lies within within the individual. Is okay. What brings me to the mat? Well, exactly. Why am I here? What is it that's motivating me? You know, if you're motivated by, I want to be able to do a thirty minute headstand. That's only going to get you. That's only going to keep you on the mat for so long, and odds are you're going to get hurt <laughs> along, you know, along the way, <laughs> but, uh, you know, th- this is why intention is so key. And it's why it's important that we recognize when we're in class, and especially when we're leading a class, a practice, we're not performing mm-hmm. that instead we want to allow lots of time and space for where we're not talking and telling people what to do, but we're letting them simply abide in the asana and give folks time to reflect. And this is why it's important that we have a restorative practice. And I say this as a notorious Shavasana thief. Uh, (laughs) As as in you don't leave anybody any time for it, you mean? Yeah, Yeah. especially like when I'm not so much when I would teach group classes, when I taught group classes, I always allowed Mm. at least 15 minutes for Shavasana. That was a habit of mine. But as I have moved beyond teaching uh, group classes into more in-depth science-based uh, and evidence-informed continuing education. Uh, I I tend to skip Shavasana. I, I tell people Shava at home, not because I don't believe there's value to the practice, but because usually we're engaged in such a spirited dialogue, we just run out of time. Yeah. And I that's all that's I know I'm accumulating karmic debts for that and <laughs> I, I shouldn't be so cavalier about it but I mean I the way I rationalize it Daniel is I myself am sure to practice restorative a, a series of restorative yoga poses daily mm-hmm. uh for a minimum of 20 minutes often for 45 minutes to an hour and I know that's a, a time luxury, but the, this is this is something that people can incorporate into their bedtime routine. Yeah, or, you explain that very clearly in the book, actually, how you just go to bed 20 minutes earlier in a structured way. <laughs> yes, because that time of reflection, for me, oh, the asana is a tool. Okay, because we we do need to be able to move. We we want to hew closely to the sort of seven functional movements that are that are the root of locomotion, or what I, or bija seed movements for the mm-hmm. asana. So we want to be able to hinge. We want to be able to rotate. You know, uh, these things are pull push. These things are very important just to maintain our activities of daily living. 
So asana serves that purpose because if we're stiff in body, we're going to be stiff in mind and heart. Mm. You know, if you've ever had an injury, you you mentioned earlier, you're sitting with arthritis. When the joints get stiff, the brain gets stiff. Our perspective narrows. So this is the, the magic, if you will, of asana is to keep us moving. And the thing is, that's only a part of the equation, because no matter how much asana we're doing, our brain is working all the time, you know, (laughs) tens of thousands of thoughts per day. And the problem is we will believe many of them. (laughs) And so the restoratives in particular, putting ourselves in a position of supported rest and allowing ourselves to connect our awareness and our attention to the rhythms of our breath and the beating of our heart, that's what allows us to actually reflect and to make determinations as to whether what we're doing when we're acting is correlating with our highest values. And it may even, we may not even be aware of our highest values, but but by giving ourselves the space to feel the body at rest, our highest values will often reveal themselves to us. And, and also the means. kind of disparity between that and what's going on in the world and sudden revelations can pop up of like, I really don't need to be doing that. That's not helping me very much. Exactly. And that's where boundaries come from. Exactly. You know, and lots of us have leaky boundaries. It's part of being a person, but, you know, part of being a person is we can learn new skills and uh, also learn what to let go of, which leads me on to a phrase I noticed on your website, which I think was referring to a course you're running with Lizzie Lassiter, um, but it maybe is a phrase you use more often, uh, samskaric biology. And uh, <laughs> that seemed to relate to this uh, you know, connection between what's going on in the mind, what's going on in the body and, and the, you know, the patterning that we accumulate from what's happened to us. And uh, on some level, I assume that had something to do with, you know, the Bessel von der Kolk type you know, analysis of uh, trauma living in the body and the possibility, therefore, of physical practice unwinding some of this you know, accumulated baggage for us. But I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that, because it sounds like it's got you know a lot to do with putting philosophy into practice. If the whole point of philosophy is to reveal what's behind all of that samskaric chaos that's uh, keeping us conditioned in unhelpful ways. Yeah, that's exact. So Lizzie and I were brainstorming and I actually came up with that term uh, for the, exactly that reason, because, you know, you've heard Bessel van der Kolk, uh, of course, his book, The Body Keeps the Score and Issues in Our Tissues. And see, that's the thing. Um, memory doesn't just reside in the hippocampus, <laughs> right? <laughs> it doesn't just live in the limbic system. Memory resides in our in our bodies. It resides, uh, it it can certainly be stimulated by a visual reference or an auditory reference. It can be stimulated by touch, by smell, et cetera. Any differentiation between the body and the mind, the brain and the body is really a false one. Mm -hmm. And so if we want to improve our, sense of living, you know, to introduce 
ease in how we perceive the world. Not so that we put on rose-colored glasses, but so that we're able to maintain autonomy, cultivate autonomy, and make decisions that are congruent with our needs, wants, values. Uh, we really, I think, want to work with movement and rest and pranayama, breathing practices, so that we have uh, greater elasticity in all of our cells and tissues so that we can then let go of the hold of some of these memories, not so that we forget them, but so that we are able to recognize that they coexist. All of the things that happen in our lives, we never truly forget, you know? Mm. We may no longer recall them actively, but they still live within us. So by working in with individualized movement practices, by making by by making choices on the mat where the asana actually fits the individual, mm-hmm. their their form their intentions, then that is, that I believe is how we rewire uh, trauma, for instance, in the body, because it's not stuck. We can use the different types of prana to move things where they need to be moved. Mm-hmm. And the thing is the body's so much smarter than we are. Like, it no it, the the low back it doesn't want to tighten up every time you go home for the holidays because the low back doesn't like that because it's always in communication with gravity and it's like well we can't carry the weight of the head neck shoulders and rib cage as well if we're tight and we can't walk and the pelvis is like yeah and I can't actually move as well if if we're tight because you're concerned about the relationships within your family because there's some difficulty there and so using the practices of yoga i believe it's just a, a system of inquiry that allows us to determine what serves us and what needs to be retired Mm-hmm. A couple of other phrases that popped up when I was reading around some of what you're teaching that sort of resonate again, coming back to your original comment about the pelvis, but uh, then also the theme that's popped up a few times now in relation to gravity. You mentioned a gravity positioning system as sort of one of the main tools we need to develop to navigate our, our, our you know, embodiment. And uh, then also this phrase, the pelvis is everything, which I believe you're going to be <laughs> theming a retreat around in a few yeah. months time. I just wonder in what sense is the pelvis everything and how does that relate to gravity? Mm-hmm. Well, so um, if we take a moment, actually talk a little bit more about our samskaric biology. Please, please. <laughs> okay. So it, We've heard of the vagus nerve. So we have a pair of vagus nerves, the wanderers, uh, and they are connected to, you know, every organ system of the body and uh, through the brainstem, through the uh, pons medulla oblongata, the base of the brain. Okay. So these are ancient 
um, brain structures, the so-called uh, reptilian brain, you know, mm -hmm. because heart rate and respiratory rate aren't optional body functions. <laughs> so the vagus nerve is really 80% uh, of its fibers are sensory. Okay. 20% are motor fibers and are related to constriction in the throat, facial expression, uh, so prosody of voice and, you know, how we interact face-to-face -face with people. But 80% of those fibers are sensory and they are determining our felt sense. They're sensing what is our level of stress and strain, okay? And when we are not in tune with how our bodies actually feel, not what they should look, should in air quotes, look like, or what, what they should be able to do, but how our bodies are actually put together, how we're actually moving, the quality of that movement, the control of that movement determines, a, a, determines how safe we feel and, and where the emphasis is in our autonomic nervous system, if we're in a state of sympathetic upregulation or parasympathetic imminence. And so how our pelvis is moving about is key to the body's sense of security in the context of gravity, because the pelvis is the largest, heaviest region of the body. It's really a basin, you know, and uh, major organ systems reside in that space, but also some of the largest muscles of locomotion are wrapped around the pelvis. I mean, the gluteus maximus, it couldn't be more aptly named, <laughs> you know, maximus, it's thick, 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 um, layers of myofascia and three, well, actually you could say five of the largest weight bearing and force translating joints of the body reside in the pelvis, two hips, two sacroiliac joints and L5 S1. And there's a reason for this. See, because our primary axis of movement is the transverse axis of the hips. It's not the so-called spine, the vertebral column. The vertebral column is like an antenna. It's receiving all of the muscle energy from the limbs and the trunk. It's not generating the movement. The movement doesn't generates... also move that much, does it? Compared exactly, to... <laughs> exactly, because it's an organizing axis. Yeah. So it by its nature need, needs to be more stable because everything's organized around it, you know? And so the pelvis, the, especially the hips, it's all about the hips to maintain. If we want to maintain our mobility, we, we must have strong, resilient, cooperative hips. And the pelvis is, it connects everything, you know, connects the upper body to the lower body. And it's really this round house. Like if you're, I don't know if you're into trains, 
you know, <laughs> but, you know, if you go to Victoria Station in London and you've got all, just trains coming in everywhere, that's kind of like the pelvis. It's, it's, if I move my arm, which I'm doing right now, that muscle energy will make it into my vertebral column. And then I may adjust my seated position slightly. Yeah. Based on the antenna, the information moving through the antenna of my vertebral column. And if I move my pelvis in any particular way, then above and below will adjust. And so the pelvis is everything really comes from the work of these just visionary physiatrists and physiotherapists, um, Andre Vleeming and Diane Lee and Linda Joy Lee. And they're like super nerds. They're awesome, super nerds. <laughs> and basically if we, if you're out of whack, this is the technical kinesiologic term. If you're out of whack in your pelvis, meaning one ilium, for instance, is higher than the other, or your sacrum, which is like the rudder of the body, is turned to the right or to the left, uh, it, it, you're going to have dysfunction in the kinetic chain of your body's movement. And so we want to be very aware of balance through the pelvis, be very aware of how the pelvis uh, is receiving the legs, especially in cases of leg length inequality, which 40% of people have a leg length inequality, 40%. You know, back in the day, it used to be, they used to say it was 4%. But imaging has improved. Leg length inequalities are going to affect how you sit, stand, walk, run, jump, do trikonasana, stand in mountain pose, all of these things. And that's going to affect then position of the rib cage, your shoulders, and your head. So we really, I think, first thing I look at when I'm working with folks and what I check on myself every day is what's the position of my pelvis and uh, are my iliac crests, is the top of the pelvis level? Does one hip, does one ilium look like it's rolling farther forward than the other? And also if you're out walking with someone, you're out strolling on the street, let's say you're on the right and they're on the left and you keep bumping into them, you're on level terrain, right? And you keep bumping into them. Well, guess what? You know that your sacrum is turned left facing. And you're just walking around the world in a big <laughs> circle. <laughs> and then, But that's useful information because then you can do neuromusculoskeletal training exercises to get your sacrum recentered. And then that's going to have tremendous effects on everything from how you feel in your lower back and your neck to how your feet strike the earth. All makes a lot of sense and uh, leads me to an awkward question um, because uh, a lot of what's presented in the book um, is a very helpful invitation into this sort of exploration of your own anatomy and then also with some practice guidance ways to you know, tune up really to be more um i guess capable of engaging in the inquiry on a you know more extensive basis perhaps through other shapes and other practices um 
But that does make me wonder how far one can ever teach a group class, given this disparity in everybody's experience Mm -hmm. and the fact that the real practice is for us to inquire for ourselves what's going on in our own embodiment. It makes me wonder whether when it really comes back to the title, teach people, um, rather than teaching a particular shape and telling people to adapt themselves to it, um, can you only really do that one-to-one or in a very small group back to the old-fashioned guru model? Um, or is there some way of you know making it part of a, a bigger group experience? Oh, so I I really this I'm very excited that you brought this up because um I <laughs> I believe that I've succeeded as a teacher when you no longer come to me. Hmm. I believe that the entire that all classes are a lab you know, where we're doing experiments to help break the code on the asana for you. And then you go home and practice. Hmm. If you're, if, if yoga classes are quote unquote, your practice, you're not practicing. Practice occurs alone on your mat, me, myself, and I. (laughs) you know and so yeah i think in an ideal world all all asana instruction all all, not just asana uh i am trying not to get into too much trouble Uh, (laughs) but really all all yoga practice ideally is taught one-on-one or in small groups with the explicit agreement that the instruction is exactly that it's just instruction, but the practice comes down to you. Well, of course we've identified immediately there implicitly one of the problems that that's not good for business. And uh, given that yoga is intersected with, you know, kind of hyper-capitalism in the Western world um, and a lot of people have found a way to make a living off the back of it. um, That's a problem. And, uh, one of the ways that they've tried to get around that, obviously, um, is to find more sustainable sources of income um, so that you don't have to teach 25 classes a week to make it pay. And that's you know, usually led to the proliferation of teacher training programs because people pay more money for those. So there's lots more people, cookie cutter style, you know, qualified in air quotes to get mm-hmm. out there and carry on the same old game. And uh, it's a problem. Uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on what we might do about it. It is a huge problem. And, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of studios and I'm not casting stones, you know, but a lot of studios use teacher training programs to pay the rent. Of course. Uh, You know, I get that. But yoga studios are really just specialized gyms. Mm -hmm. And I love yoga studios. I love them. I mean, I love there's I love to teach asana. It's fun. It's challenging. I don't mind people cursing at me because something is hard, you know. That's just fun. Um I don't mind being provocative in that way. But the reality is um a studio is not an ashram. <laughs> you know, and uh if you think about it, uh, Krishnamacharya was impoverished. BKS Iyengar, they were impoverished for long time, long periods of time, you know? So, and I'm someone who, you know, sings for their supper teaching yoga and I, I, but I do other things like 
Um, fortunately, I was able to write a book. Uh, but for many, 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 many years, you know, I had a so-called day job, if you will. And I'm not saying that that's what everyone should do, but that was the reality. Uh, and this, uh, the business model of yoga, and I'm not a business person. Okay. So let me just say that, but the business model of yoga is broken. You know, it's almost like, how do you monetize um, essentially an eightfold path towards spiritual liberation? And how do you do that ethically? Well, you've, I think, put your finger on something right there. I mean, the whole eight part thing from the Yoga Sutras isn't quite all it's cracked up to be because it's probably not eight bits of it anyway. And uh, the Buddha's version of eight parts um, has in it right livelihood. <laughs> and uh, that's a good question to be asking ourselves. And the fact that that's not there in, in, in you know, the yogi's pocket version of philosophy does tend to let people off the hook with that question. And I think if we honestly asked ourselves, is what we're doing in accordance with the principles of the philosophy that inspires the practice most of it wouldn't pass the test um but then how would we all eat so perhaps i think we come back to your point you know it's, it's not supposed to be a way of making a living uh, if you're lucky enough because people are you know flocking to get some benefit from what you're offering that they pay enough for you to cover your costs fantastic <laughs> but it shouldn't be a career choice <laughs> i don't think and there's yeah. too many people who are expecting that it is yeah, you know, I've joked for a long time, and my my husband doesn't find this as funny as I do, that I run a nonprofit. There you go. Yeah. You know, because basically I spend a lot of my, the income that I make on training for my own sake, because, you sure. know, um, I just really see myself as a facilitator for practice, because in my life experience, I have found that I am more content in my life through the techniques of practice. And I want everyone to have that option. But understanding that it's difficult. This isn't a one size fits all or, you know, do five Surya Namaskars and you're healed sort of thing. I mean, yoga is something, asana, meditation, pranayama, uh, checking in with yama niyama every day, um, et cetera. These, this requires constant steady effort and it's effortful, <laughs> you know? And so I really think that my role is, to share my experience and share information in a way that facilitates and makes and, and encourages practice. But the, the, the key is that folks practice and that's a choice we all have to make. And if, again, if we're, if, if your so-called practice is going to a, an asana class a couple times a week. Understand this is all I'm saying. Understand that you're just you're, you're you're it's great. Have a great time, but it's a group exercise class. It's 
even though the intention's different and you may say namaste <laughs> at the end of the class, you may, <laughs> you may chant the Gaia tree, you know, you may, the instructor may read passages from the Gita or, um, you know, another text, but that's not the practice. Uh, hey, I, I would, I guess, just like to stick a skeptical spanner in the works just for a second, because there's mm -hmm. one experience of coming together in a group context that I did find different in my yoga journeying. And that was the uh, you know Ashtanga Mysore room, where although there is this rigidity about the sequence and also some of the invasive <laughs> adjustments that people go in for, um, at the same time, there is this basic space in which everybody is actually just through the collective engagement in, you know, a personal inquiry, perhaps um, energized by the presence of others. Um, so there's this sort of sangha effect of sincere commitment to the yeah, very, very individual process in a group. And, and I found that quite inspiring. And I, I haven't found many other ways in which that exists in the yoga world, certainly not in the average group instruction class. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if uh, if you feel that that's got some sort of seeds of something that's beneficial, the fact that we exist in relationship, the world is actually co-created, um, even in our you know sense that we're in our little shell. Um, we only get that through our relation with what's outside us. Um, and so I wonder if, you know, if we spend too much time thinking practices, just me, myself and I, if that leads us away from a deeper understanding of our interdependence. Oh, I think absolutely. Here's the thing. When I say that the group classes aren't practice, it doesn't mean they're not necessary mm -hmm. because you learn there. That's why I think of, you know, I call classes asana labs because you, and, and you learn with others and we learn best with others. This, there's tons of neuroscience and pedagogical study on this. It, there is tremendous value in coming together in a group of people who uh, enjoy the same activity and uh, may share similar motivations. You will retain more information. I mean, this is, this is the science of it. You will retain more information. You are more likely to develop a personal practice if you go to group classes, whether those group classes are body pump classes at a gym or asana classes in a yoga studio. The science is very clear that if you want to develop a habit of uh, whether it's asana or weightlifting, go to a group class. And, you know, the, you make friends too. And, you know, all our neurobiology is oriented toward community. And so there's tremendous value in going to class a couple times a week or even every day and getting on the mat with other people. But here's the thing though, um, you still need to practice on your own <laughs> because you need to do things at your own pace, at your own time, without someone telling you what to do. Now, my sort of classes are different in that you are doing a self-paced practice, um, but you're still doing a series that was decided upon by someone else. So, you know, but I'm a huge fan. I mean, I, a huge fan of group classes because I think it's important 
because you know you're not alone. You know, and we can co-create with our students, with fellow practitioners, an environment where learning may arise. And inspiration, the inspiration to then take that learning off the mat and, you know, out into the world, into your interactions at the dinner table with your friends and family. And so um, I just, though, I just want to be clear that practice by its nature <laughs> is solitary. I hear you. It's an inward journey and um, it's one that's got as many different paths as there are people, which does yes. seem to be the spirit of the message of what you've written in your book, which uh, again, I'd love to just reiterate my congratulations for, um, <laughs> and also to uh, thank you for this really rich and uh, you know, wide ranging exploration of the fact that, you know, the, the mat is not the territory. It's our whole life that we're exploring through yoga, but the mat is where we can go about it in a structured way. So yes, thank you again. Um... Thank you so much, Daniel. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. And thank you so much for reading my book and reading it so carefully and thoughtfully and having me join you today. Oh, thank you again. I hope this is uh, one of many conversations. So yeah, thanks. All right. Thank you.